Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your device, would you get there to Genesis? We're going to start actually in Genesis 2.21. And I'd like you to stand as I read a part of this for us this morning. We stand with the Word of God. I want to read it. I'll pray, and then we'll get right into Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent, chapter 3, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, he said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So, Lord, please, I ask for your blessing. We know your word is, is alive and powerful. We know that it's our spiritual, even as, as was being prayed, our manna, milk, meat, and manna. It's what we need spiritually. And Jesus, you said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear the things I prepared. You'd break them fresh, Lord. You'd lead us today by your spirit in our thinking, in our hearts, that we might leave here having heard from you. And, Lord, even more than that, that we're responding to you, the only true God. We love you, Lord. Bless now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Dr. William Griffith Thomas, who lived in the late 1800s into the 1900s, he said this of chapter... Genesis chapter 3. He called it the pivot of the whole Bible. The pivot of the Bible. You see, if you doubt that, read Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Leave out chapter 3 and go to chapter 4. You will find there's a tremendous vacuum that needs to be filled. That something happened of devastating consequences. From perfection and innocence to jealousy Anger, murder, lying, wickedness, corruption, rebellion, judgment, and death. So it begs the question, what happened? Well, Genesis chapter 3 tells exactly what happened. It's called the fall for a reason, a very good reason. So what happened is exactly what God said would happen. Look at chapter uh, 3 now, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? 
So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now look back in chapter 2 a moment, beginning in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Notice, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Very clear command to Adam by God. Now, Romans chapter 5, there's so, many, so much we, can, we, we need to talk about this morning. So I'm going to give you a sort of a skim over some theological things. Romans chapter 5, in fact, the book of Romans, verses, chapters 1 through 8, is a really important book. <laughs> They're all important. But as we're looking at these things going on in Genesis, Romans, Paul gives us a commentary that's very important. So again, if you have your Bibles and, you're eight, and, and you would turn to Romans chapter 5 for a moment, I want to read a few verses from there. The first one is Romans 5.12, where Paul, in writing the book of Romans, it's called the fifth gospel, actually. He says, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So whether we like it or not, sin happened. It's impossible to change that. That's why we need chapter 3. Man sinned against God. After that incredible beginning creation came the fall. This catastrophic beginning of sin and death coming into the world through the one man. So every descendant of Adam and Eve, that's you and me, <laughs> that's the human race. Every descendant of Adam and Eve is born a sinner. We have a fallen nature. So the indictment is clear. The verdict rendered. You shall surely die. Now, Romans again, chapter 3 says this. We know that whatever the law says, it says those are under law, that every mouth may be stopped. And listen, all the world may become guilty before God. Now, the law wasn't here at this point, but still sin reigned from Adam to Moses before the law ever came. Sin entered the world and death through sin, separation from God. So a sinner by fallen nature, listen, cannot change him or herself. Much less save him or herself from sin. That is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. All things. And we're going to see right at the beginning, God had a plan and a promise, a prophesied promise to take care of the problem that man brought into the world through disobedience to a direct command of God. So, Romans 5 again. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation... Even so, through one man's righteous act, that's Jesus on the cross, living his life and dying on the cross, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life, just as if we never sinned. We are justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, promised right at the beginning, Genesis 3.15, verse 19. 
For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, or really literally superabounded, where sin superabounded, and indeed it did from Adam on, grace abounded much more. Can I hear an amen? God's undeserved favor toward us. God's riches, grace, at Christ's expense. Grace abounded much more. Oh, is that not thrilling? To realize that God has provided for our salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. We are justified by, by faith in the work that He accomplished. His grace abounds toward us through Christ and what He accomplished for us. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you mark that? If this is new to you, would you mark that? Because Genesis chapter 3 is a defining moment in the history of mankind that God right from the beginning had a defining plan to take care of man's problem in rebelling against him, in disobeying him. So the Lord God called to Adam. This always breaks my heart in a good way. The Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? Do you know God's work in our lives is always trying to call us out of hiding from him? Where are you? Now, note, this is not the cry of an angry cosmic cop ready to exert all his authority and punish his guilty creatures. No, my friend, don't believe that. When my children are in hiding, I'm crying out to them to bring them out so we can talk about it because we have a relationship. And God is always seeking to call us out of hiding. Where are you? Where are you this morning? Do you know that he's the, our heavenly father who loves you, who through his son provided everything needed to forgive you of all your sin? And declare you righteous before him. And give you a hope and an and a inheritance that fades not away. That is reserved for you in heaven. And you, you, the only way to really know it is to come out of hiding with him. Where are you? Adam. Where are you? You see that resultant guilt and shame and sin. Caused man to go into hiding. And fearing God. And being afraid of him. God never intended that for man. What he desired was a meaningful relationship. He creates in his image, unlike any other part of his creation, that we might know him and walk with him and love him. But Eve and then Adam chose differently. They made a choice. And we know that, that in, in so making that choice, now they knew good and evil. They knew sin. Their eyes were opened. They began to experience what they couldn't bear, separation from God, about which they could do nothing. And then when God calls them into account, where are you? What did you do? <laughs> they passed the buck. And we're good at that. We're very good at that. Why would they do that? Because they know, as we do, it deserves punishment. 
Sin deserves God's punishment. And God as a just and holy God must punish sin. He can't, oh, well, that's okay. No, he's a just God. And so Adam now is willing to let Eve take the blame. Oh, how far he had fallen. And so the man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. And that was true. But he's passing the buck. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now Paul tells us something interesting in writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.13. He says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And listen. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. The, the devil deceived Eve. Adam did it knowingly. That's a whole nother. <laughs> we could spend four studies on that one. Now, listen. She was deceived. That's true. But listen. Sin is still sin. Sin is always sin. So we might try and excuse it. Or, but sin is sin. The Lord God said to the serpent, so he says to the man, says to the woman, now he says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Interesting, this woman doesn't have the seed. He, capital H, shall bruise your head, a mortal wounding, and you shall bruise his heel, which is a temporary wounding, not mortal. So again, a sinner by fallen nature cannot change him or herself, much less save him or herself. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Amen. You see, this same heavenly father who cried out, where are you, Adam, would send his only begotten son into the world to take the blame for us, to take and bear our punishment that we deserved on himself, and God laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what happened. Right there when man sinned, God prophesied his promised plan that the seed of the woman would mortally wound the serpent, put an end to him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And then he says this, who gave himself a ransom all to be testified in due time. So it's going to be a few years yet before this promise happens. But listen, God promised it and God did it for you and for me. And so he's crying out down through the ages of man's existence and down through the pages of the scriptures, crying out, where are you? Where are you? Until that final cry, the final triumphant cry on the cross, it is finished. It's finished. That was a cry of victory in death. 
Because Jesus not only died, he rose again the third day, and he conquered sin. He conquered the principalities and powers. He conquered the devil. He conquered it all for you and for me. And now he says, I have a way back for you. You can come to me, all you who labor and have I will give you rest. You can come to me, and I'll be the author and the finisher of your faith. You can come to me, and I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit. I'll give you new life. I'll open your eyes to see, yes, you can see the good and evil, but now you'll be able to discern between good and evil, and you'll be able to walk with me in, in complete freedom from sin and its power and its penalty and its very presence one day when we arrive in heaven. That's what he said. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. In him. And then I read, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, death entered the world through the one man, but through Christ we have this glorious future that when this whole this body gives out. We have a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Why? Oh, because I just, I mean, I'm just so wonderful. Eh, eh, wrong answer. Because <laughs> God is so wonderful. That's what he did for us. And so Paul, at the end of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, says, after this whole thing, sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We are living a life now on a whole different dimension, whole different plane, where we're walking with God. We want to be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that my labor is not in vain in the Lord. I am living for a purpose. I have meaning. I've been saved. I have a future. God knows me. He's created me to be in His image. He knows all the things about me. He knows how I'm wired. He knows all of it. And He says, where are you? I want to walk with you today. I want to be with you today. As Christians, we're strangers and pilgrims looking forward to our eternal home in heaven with God. We're looking forward to his coming and his coming kingdom. But until then, we live in a fallen world. You go, you can groan because the Bible says, okay, groan. Oh, is that not the truth? We live in a fallen world. Every day we contend with a fallen, sinful nature that's, that's our old nature. We contend with a cunning adversary, a fallen angel named Lucifer and all of his hosts of evil, wicked spirits. We contend with that as believers. We contend with a fallen, worldly system. We'll look at that in a moment. So these three things are aligned against us in opposition to the will of God. So what the devil wants to do, what Satan is trying to do, is to tempt you to sin against God. It hasn't changed. And he's always doing that. And so he has the worldly system, we'll look at that in a moment, himself, and then our sinful nature. You see, 
a sin-cursed world brought separation, isolation, sorrow, and pain, and we can't get away from that. Notice in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, verse 17, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. I love this. Very good passage right there. Verse 16. Uh, you saw, and your conception in pain you shall bring forth children. See, life begins at conception. But from conception to death, conception to the grave, there's no escaping the consequence of sin. It's a cursed world of sorrow, pain, toil, and death. That's what it is. I'm not trying to depress you. I'm just trying to tell you this is reality. But thank God we live in a whole fresh new reality in walking with God. A life conceived is, a, is one of the, if not the greatest miracle that we can experience. A life lived has the capacity to enjoy the highest form of love in marriage and the deepest intimacy. That's, that's there. That's still there, that potential. But in all of life, there's no escaping. We live in a cursed, fallen world where there's sorrow and pain and toil and death. And thus, our hope cannot be in this world. And so, for a life that's been saved, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the resurrection that we read about. That's our hope. A whole other dimension. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Stay at it is what I like to say. Three things I'm going to give you this morning real quickly here. On the tempter and the tempted. Three things. Number one, grab your sword. Can you hear an amen? amen. Now you might say, well, I want to grab the sword. I want to go kill somebody. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> Stay awake. And three, be patient. Grab your sword. I'm going to spend most of the time here. The last two will just hit. Grab your sword, my brothers and sisters. We live in a world by which if we do not have our swords sharpened and our armor on, we will be defeated in this area of being tempted to sin against God. We will be. So grab your sword, the word of God. Advance your skills in handling the word of God. Train hard with it. Your life depends on it. The quality of your life depends on it. Your victory over sin depends on it. Handle it regularly and handle it often. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, you've heard this over and over again. In fact, I fear sometimes lest we've heard it too much. And we begin to be dull of hearing. We begin to be lackadaisical in realizing that this armor that God's given us is his word. It's our strength. It's our protection. That the sword of the spirit is our offensive weapon. And I fear lest we hear this often. Because how did Jesus answer the devil in every temptation? He didn't call down the angels. He didn't do a miracle. He didn't tempt God. He just said what? It is written. That's all he did. That's all he said. It is 
written. It's so important and so vital because that's how Jesus approached the temptation of, listen, the devil himself. I don't think I've ever been confronted by the devil himself, but I've certainly battled with a few forces myself. So don't get lazy, my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Don't get lackadaisical. Renew your mind. Train your senses to discern both good and evil. The writer of Hebrews talks about that. You should be teachers, but you're no longer because you haven't done that. You still need to come back to the basics. Let's get past the basics, basic training. And let's begin to exercise ourselves in winning the battle against temptation and sinning against God. Grab your sword. Now, what does the Word of God say about temptation? A couple things. Number one, temptation is a given where choice is a reality. Temptation is a given where choice is a reality. And this is where in the beginning, why Adam even had a choice to make? Because if, there's, if, if God gave us this autonomy to live like we want to, to make choices, it has to be a real choice. It has to have a real alternative, a, a, uh, a, a, an alternative that's, that we look at and say, mm, that looks good too. And then once the choice is made, it has to be honored. Whatever the consequences might be, whatever it is, if the choice is real, when I make the, uh, that choice, whether it's an attractive alternative or what, whatever I decide, once I make that, God can't say, oh, no, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to. No, no. It has to be honored. And that's why we get here. Now, Adam and Eve were tempted. Listen, you know this, but let me tell you again. Adam and Eve were tempted in a perfect environment. Really? Yeah. It was perfect. And so we can sometimes excuse ourselves. And say, oh, if only I had a better this or a better that. Now, I'm not stepping on anything as far as I get the need we have as human beings. We're very complicated. I get the need that we have to begin to work through things and trouble. And I get the fact that I have roots in my family and that matters. But we can't excuse ourselves from what we are. God says, where are you? Come out. Let me talk. Let's deal with this. But I, I feel, and I've done this, that I spent a lot of energy writing my environmental impact statement. If this hadn't happened, if that hadn't happened, if I didn't have this and that. What God wants to do is say, come to me and let's have a relationship. Come to me and let's talk about these things. And God's the one who has to set us free. The Son is the only one who can set us free from sin. We cannot set ourselves free, nor can anyone else. It must come from God as we're in fellowship with him. You see, temptation is not a matter of environment. It's a matter of choice. So I say, don't, don't put yourself in the wrong environments. Whenever possible, choose to simply stay away from anyone or any place that's going to be giving you a choice that you know is going to be tempting. Don't go there. Don't hang out with them. Evil company corrupts good habits. That's what Paul said. Don't set yourself up for sin, to sin. So if you struggle with alcohol, don't buy it and don't go to the tavern. If you struggle with gossip, stay away from blabbermouths. If you struggle with lust, make a covenant with your eyes and with who, whatever person or program that will discover you. 
that will find you out, that will run interference for you. And that's a huge problem, and we all know that. Don't go there. Timothy said, flee youthful lusts. It is super spiritual to run for your life. Get out of there. Get out of there. Peter said, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. That's what they do. Temptation is a given when choice is a reality. It's going to come along. But temptation in and of itself is not sin. Note that, please. Temptation of itself is not sin. We read of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points, listen, tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. Tempted, yes, but not sin. Temptation itself is not a sin. As someone, uh, I think it was Spurgeon, said, you know, the birds might fly over your head, but you can keep them from making nests in your hair. <laughs> in other words, they're going to fly over, but don't make a nest. For, in other words, the temptation itself is going to happen, but that's not the sin. What does the Word of God say about the tempter? Jesus, it says in Luke chapter 4, when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Listen about the tempter. He may let up for a season, but never for good. He may back off, but all the while, he's looking for another opportune time in your life. He will take advantage of you if you're not aware of his devices. And let me say, he never stops scrutinizing your life. He's the tempter. Satan's ultimate goal is to tempt you to sin against God. And by so doing, to sin against your own soul. To sin against your wife or your husband, your child or children, your grandchild or grandchildren. Your friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, your employer, your employee. What he's doing is seeking to get you to sin against God. And so doing, you're sinning against your own soul. And then you're also sinning against all these other people in your life. And with that, all the injury inflicted, much we probably aren't even aware of, the collateral damage can wind up being incalculable. All because I decided to make a choice to sin against God. Sin is like leaven. It corrupts silently, it corrupts insidiously, and it corrupts if not dealt with completely. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. That's the truth. That's the deal. And the tempter is seeking to tempt you to sin against God. He won't let up. His ultimate goal is that you would sin against God. Now, how does he do that? Number one, he does that by analyzing your weaknesses. Like with Job. God said, and I hope God never boasts me about this because I'd rather not go through what Job went through. Uh, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Upright man, blameless, all these things. Satan said, you know what? Yeah, I've, I've, I, but... If you will just let me add him, he's going to curse you to your face. He had been scrutinizing Job. 
For 6,000 years, the devil has been scrutinizing fallen human nature. He's an expert, and you're no match for him. Don't try and match wits with him. He has been exploiting it from the beginning. And listen, you are no exception. This is why the tempter. He may be roaming around, but he's never roaming around outside the sovereign authority of God himself. God allows, as with Job, we looked at that. God allows these things for his good purpose. But listen, the devil has no good purpose. The servant, it says, verse 1, is more cunning. That means he's smooth, he's slick, he's crafty. He's the embodiment of pure evil. Jesus, he's a liar and the father of lies. There's no truth in him. The serpent means the shining one. Now, we don't know what he looks like, but it's, Scripture would seem to point that he was the most beautiful of God's creation. Scripture would allude in, in two passages that are important, if, if you want to write these down, as far as Satan himself. One is in Isaiah 14. The way I remember these is start out with Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, and then take Isaiah 14 and multiply it by 2 to chapter 28 and go to Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15 again. And those seem to indicate that he was the worship leader in heaven. He was, he, he was given the most exalted position, all of God's creation, and he fell. We read in Isaiah five times, I will, I will. Satan says, I'm going to exercise my will against God's will. I will, I will, I will, I will. Until Yet you shall, God said, you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths. You see, Satan is not the opposite of God. But he exercised his will against the will of God. And God said, you're going to be brought down to the pit. Ezekiel 28 you were, seven times, you were, you were, you were. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, in the garden of God. You were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until, until. Iniquity was found in you. Uh, something happened and this malevolent being and you and I are no match for such a cunning adversary. We as Jews, Michael the Archangel said, the Lord rebuke you. We need God to take care of Satan as he already has and to stand between us. Satan's ultimate goal is to tempt you to sin against God. Number one, he analyzed your weakness. Secondly, he attacks the word of God. He attacks the word of God. With Eve, he said, has God indeed said? So he starts casting doubt on the word of God. He starts questioning the word of God. Hey, listen, grab your sword. He starts directly contradicting the word of God. That's why I have been given a heritage that I so treasure. That the word of God has the highest place in what we're doing as a church, what I do as a Christian. That God's word, he said, I've exalted my word above my name. Now, you know this. I've preached on it many, many times. But may I remind you again, grab your sword, the word of God. Exercise yourself in it. Know what it says about temptation. Know what it says about the tempter. Know what it says about you as being tempted. That's what God has for us. 
And the answer, it is written, it is written. And then verse 5, he begins through. If we start questioning and casting doubt and contradicting the word of God, what happens? The very character of God becomes questionable in our minds. Oh, well, listen, God knows that if, that if you eat that, you're going to be like him. He's holding out on you. He's got something that he's not telling you. No, that's not true at all. The third way he does this, he appeals to your worldly appetites. The world, the flesh, and the devil are three against us, and they are aligned against us to disobey God, to sin against him. Verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, the passions. The tree was good for food. What she says is, that's good for me. And this is appealing to begin with, with the body appetites. Now, there's nothing wrong with them. Physical needs are given to us by God. They're good. They're pleasurable. They're not wrong, except we begin to exercise them and satisfy them contrary to God's will. Sex is a beautiful thing, but not outside of marriage. Food is a good thing, pleasurable to enjoy it, but when we become gluttonous, it becomes sin. Something that God wants to help us overcome. So first, by appealing to my body appetites, and then it says there, it was pleasant to the eyes. Now listen, I think this is really important. What he's talking about here, I believe, is the mind. We see something, we desire it, and Jesus himself said, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if, when your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light, but when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. How do you see these things? Are you seeing them in the context of how God sees them? Are you going to look at them? And it deals with possessions. It deals with things that I want. My mind begins to visualize a desire that I want. And it starts in the mind. Paul tells us in Corinthians, casting down these things. You see, our mind is the battlefield. And as we're looking out and seeing these things, she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. I want that. And she begins then to visualize that desire as a reality. That happens in the mind. This is how the devil works. This is how he tempts us. And then it says, a tree desirable to make one wise. This has to do with my importance, my body, my mind, but then my importance. That Now, we're all created with this need for intellectual stimulation and fulfillment. That's not wrong. But the Bible says knowledge puffs up. Be careful. Here is this sinful desire for recognition, for control. For praise and power it was Satan's problem. It's our problem, too, in many ways. And as Satan tempted Jesus, hey, just jump out. Look, the people will see you. And Jesus answered him, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, when, we, when, we're, when we're answering Satan in these ways, we must realize, hey, I'm not God. I'm not that important. <laughs> but this whole thing for, of the ego and to be our own God, that's what happened with Satan also. Satan's ultimate goal is to get to, you to sin against God. So grab your sword. What does it say about the tempting? That's you and me. James puts it very clearly. Would you turn there? James 1 verse 12. We're going to be taking communion to follow this up. So I hope you'll take some things to heart here. We can bring to the Lord at his table. 
But James says this in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who endures what? Temptation. For when he has been approved, he received the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when what? He's drawn away by what? His own desires. So you have this desire. begins to draw you away. It says, and, and then he's enticed. I saw. I began in my mind to see how that can be a reality, how I can make that happen. Enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown brings forth what? Death. You see, the problem with the tempted, when I'm tempted, is it's my desires and my choosing that's proving my character. And that's what temptation does. It proves my spiritual conditioning, my spiritual character. It proves what I'm really made up of when temptation comes along. And so God allows these things, and we begin to be proved through it. James says, hey, count it joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. Patience. I don't want to have patience. I want to have what I want. We need to escape. You see, as, as those tempted, listen, you might not like this, but it's true. First Corinthians tells us it's all common. There's no temptation to take you, but it's common to men. We're all tempted in these three same areas. Our passions, our possessions, and our pride. And it's common to all men, but God will give us a way of escape that we might be able to bear them. What do we escape to? I wrote a few things down here. We escape to our Lord, our Savior, our great high priest, our advocate and friend. We can escape to the cross and the throne of grace where we find mercy and grace to help us. We can escape to the body of Christ and there have the support and fellowship and serving and love that we need to battle through these things that we're facing. We can escape to our prayer room as I began and groan with the Holy Spirit. There's many ways of escape. So the other two, stay awake. In other words, watch and pray. In the garden when Jesus was being just about to be crucified, what were his disciples doing? They were sleeping. And Jesus said, wake up and pray. And we need to pray. We need to pray. In fact, when Peter would have denied Jesus, Jesus said to Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, what? That your faith fail not. I find in a prayer meeting that it is such a strengthening to my faith. We had another great prayer meeting yesterday. So the Holy Spirit's taking us through the Word. We read a chapter two, and we pray, and it just gives a conversation to us, and the Holy Spirit ministers to us as we pray. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and don't sin. Pray. Stay awake, and then be patient. Be patient. I love this whole thing. Look at the final verses of chapter three. Adam called his wife, named Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21. And Adam... And his wife, and for Adam, his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed. God clothed them, sacrificed an animal and clothed them. Picture of our, the covering we have in Christ. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now he has put out his hand and take also the tree, and take of the tree of life and eat and notice, live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God removed them for their protection until that tree would be planted again on, on Calvary and his son would die there for us on the tree, reversing that curse. Now, it took a long time, 4,000 plus years, but God did it. And it might seem like a long time that we have to endure this, this fallen world, but listen, God's promised us he will complete it. He will do it. It's not done yet, so we need patience. We need to be patiently enduring. You have need of patience. After you've done what? The will of God, you may receive the promise. There's always promises that come with God's will that are for our good, not bad. So we're going to take communion this morning together. And again, it's a time right now. I would say appropriate for the message here is what are you battling with today? What are the temptations that you face? What are the temptations that have taken you and your desires away from the Lord? What are the things that you've done in sinning against God that he has offered Jesus for your forgiveness and my forgiveness? So as we take communion, would you just close your heart off with the Lord in your life as we worship together? And let's take this time to come to Christ. Whatever hiding might be going on, he's not going to ever shame you, embarrass you. He knows all about you, so you're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. But the thing is, he wants us to acknowledge, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on. So as you just hold the bread and the cup, and we'll take them together after we worship, and they're all passed out. Let's do that. Hi, I'm Kevin Day, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel South. I really hope you enjoyed the message and that God spoke to your heart through it. If you'd like to know more about our church and find other messages to watch, head over to ccskent.org. And I would love to meet you at one of our Sunday services. God bless you.